1: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites, or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who loves the First Amendment, but the number 19 is pretty good too. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Rico Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jamil Jaffer, the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute. It's a group at Columbia University that defends the freedoms of speech and press in the digital age. And just recently, they've challenged the way Facebook deals with journalists and scholars, and they're also bothering Donald Trump. Jamil, welcome to Rico Decode.
3: Thanks very much. Really so, appreciate the So, I love all the
2: things you're doing, and that's the reason I wanted to have you on here, because there's so much interesting stuff you're doing there. So, let's talk about how you got there. How did you get there, and how did the Knight—explain what the Knight First Amendment Institute is. But sure. you first.
3: Yeah, okay. Well, so, I was uh, a lawyer at the ACLU for— 15 years. I've heard of them. Um, yeah, just down the street, actually. <laughs> uh, when, this, when this building was Goldman Sachs, I was at the ACLU. This and, building was um, Goldman Sachs? It was oh, Goldman Norman. Sachs, yeah, just until a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, man. But I worked at the ACLU starting in 2002, so soon after 9-11, and mainly at the beginning on national security-related cases, cases involving immigration detainees, uh, cases involving Guantanamo. And then cases involving the Patriot Act and government surveillance and First Amendment related questions. And you know, that grew, that practice grew. It eventually became a formal project at the ACLU focused on national security issues. And I ran that project for a few years. Uh, and then um, when I left the ACLU a couple of years ago, I was the director of something called the Center for Democracy, which covered the ACLU, the national ACLU's work on free speech, privacy, national security technology, and international human rights. Obviously, I was not doing all that work myself, There were a lot of people at the ACLU who I was working with on it. Uh, but I was doing that, and then the Knight First Amendment Institute was created at Columbia. It was really the project of Lee Bollinger, who's the president of Columbia, and Alberto Ibarguin, who's the president of the Knight Foundation. And they had had conversations over many years about the possibility of setting up something like this. And the main, the main insight that they had was that The big Supreme Court precedents from the 1960s and 70s involving free speech were precedents created in an era that looked very, very different from the one we're in right right now, where the threats to the First Amendment were quite different from the ones we're facing right Mm -hmm. now. And all of the things that raise complicated free speech questions right now, like the privatization of the public square or Mm -hmm. new surveillance technology— Search engines like none of these things existed, you know, back when the Supreme Court decided the Pentagon Papers case or New York Times versus Sullivan, uh, or the cases, you know, the big hits from sure. from the '60s and '70s. So they thought we need an institute that will focus on the edge of technology and the edge of the law and these questions that new technology. Uh, is presenting for so many the questions. First Amendment. Yeah.
2: Why did you? What What interested you in the First Amendment? In doing this as a as a lawyer.
3: Well, you know, I became a First Amendment uh, lawyer almost incidentally. I was, as I said, a kind of national security lawyer, but a lot of the national security cases I worked on turned out to be First Amendment cases. Uh, I worked on a lot of transparency cases. In fact, the the a um, case I probably spent most time on at the ACLU was a. Freedom of Information Act case involving interrogation under the Bush administration. And that case we filed in 2004. It's still running we were today. You trying to get
2: information out. Yeah, we
3: are trying to get documents about the um, treatment of prisoners in military and CIA custody. And the case was, as these kinds of cases go, a very successful one. It resulted in the release of what are sometimes called the torture memos, the Bush administration's torture memos, a lot of information about uh, maltreatment of prisoners at Guantanamo. Eventually, this CIA Inspector General report that led to a prosecution, uh, uh, a criminal investigation by the Obama administration. So it was a you know relatively successful case. That's the one I spent most of my time on. But I did a lot of other cases involving the exclusion of foreign scholars from the United States because of their political views. A lot of cases involving government surveillance, um, especially post-Snowden. We represented Snowden when I was at the ACLU and we also brought uh, a whole series of cases challenging the constitutionality of some of the surveillance programs that he disclosed or or helped disclose. Um, And I argued some of those cases just down the block from here uh, in the Second Circuit, and one of them went to the Supreme Court in 2012. And we're still now at the Knight Institute working on one of those cases with the ACLU uh, where we represent Wikimedia in a challenge to a particular kind of NSA surveillance. And these turn out to be, you know, privacy cases but also First Amendment cases. Yes,
2: hand in hand, yeah.
3: And, you know, as you know, the national security has always been the kind of crucible of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so being a national security lawyer can turn you into a First Amendment lawyer. Uh, so over time, I became uh, a First Amendment lawyer, too. And the opportunity to help start something new at Columbia with the resources of Columbia and the Knight Foundation and with people like Lee Bollinger and Alberto Ibargwin and Steve Cole and Nick Lemon from the journalism school mm-hmm. uh, involved. I mean, that was a very exciting thing. So what, do you,
2: what is your charge? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to look, study these and do what?
3: yeah so the the idea meetings, is to or? well, we, we try to limit the meetings, but uh, the idea is or to like defend
2: colloquia <laughs> colloquia we, you know,
3: we haven't yet done a colloquium. we should look into that, but yeah. but um, why not? Yeah, so we have a research program and a litigation program. Those are the two main components of the institute. You know, they do what you would expect them to do. The research program is an effort to understand these threats to understand what opportunities and what threats are presented by new technology. Uh, and the litigation program is our way of defending free speech and uh, the freedom of the press in relation to this new technology. And that, you, you know, maybe that already sounds complicated, but it's actually more complicated than than it sounds because especially now, there's um, a lot of disagreement about what the First Amendment means. So, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, it's all, you know, it's great to defend the First Amendment. But first, you have to decide, well, what is this thing that you're defending? And you know, there's a real debate about, you know, you uh, I don't know how closely you follow Supreme Court uh, decisions relating to the First Amendment, but uh, this recent case um uh, involving labor unions, in which Justice Kagan dissented and she accused the majority of weaponizing the First Amendment.
2: I love that. I use that term myself. yeah,
3: well, so so you know this is, she's Justice Kagan isn't the only one who's mm-hmm. used those kinds of phrases in relation to some First Amendment arguments. And so there's this important question of what values the First Amendment is meant to. Uh, meant to protect. So the research program is our effort to struggle with those. Uh, so what are the research?
2: What it give me give examples? And we'll get into the specific. Sure. Yeah. Just so um, for.
3: one example, we have a, a an essay series called uh, Emerging Threats, where we're focused on emerging threats to the First Amendment or emerging threats to the system of free expression. Uh, we published a paper by Tim Wu that was the first one we published called "Is the First Amendment Obsolete." And he was uh, thinking about new threats to the First Amendment, like instead of censorship, flooding an information space, Mm -hmm. or instead uh, of— Seems to work really well. Yeah, apparently it does. Or, you know, instead of having your henchmen go to somebody's door and threaten them, uh, you just harass them on social media, right? So there are these kinds of threats to the First Amendment that the First Amendment isn't really um, well-suited, at least in its current form, uh, to address. And Tim's paper was about that, and that was mm-hmm. the first one we published. But we published uh, another paper by Heather Whitney about the search engines and the proper analogy you should use. Should we think of them as editors, or should we think of search engines as more like shopping malls, or should we think of them as something else? Uh, that was another one in that series. Recently, we we published one by Jack Goldsmith, uh, who's a former Bush administration lawyer, on uh, what he calls the failure of internet freedom, um, because in his view, the... Internet freedom agen- agenda that the United States put forward, especially during the Clinton administration, has been a spectacular failure, and we now see uh, we now see that domestically as well as internationally. So that's an essay series that we're overseeing. We also did a not quite a colloquium but a symposium right. a few months ago with the Columbia Law Review on the First Amendment and inequality but the hope is that this research will inform our litigation decisions and it already has to some extent but i think it'll become the research will become even more important over time the hope is that there's a relationship between the right. two right so programs. now
2: the litigation part yeah so talk about the two things the ones that yeah you're yeah out. sure
3: so so um we now have a fairly you know we're only 2 years old but we have mm-hmm. a fairly how much money
2: do you have to do all this um we could
3: use more if, okay. if you're offering but no, I'm not. um yeah, we we were established with uh, an operational commitment from the Knight Foundation and Columbia, $5 million in, from each of those over five years. Mm-hmm. So we had this sort of base, um, generous base funding to, to start yeah, with. Is. And we have since been able to raise some money from a whole set of organizations across the political spectrum. Um, the Democracy Fund, which is associated with Pierre Omidyar, uh, uh, Sounds
2: like a peer thing.
3: Yeah. The Koch Foundation, Charles Koch Foundation. Um, open society for... Do you have to take one from each carnity? side? <laughs> well, we try, you know, we try to easy. have a diverse... Uh, well, as long as they're not meddling the with you, I don't care. They're not meddling. To the contrary, um, they have been generous supporters of the work that we want to do.
2: Yeah, as long uh, as they keep their yeah. dirty paws out, I'm good.
3: Yeah. Not like yeah. an
2: Eric Schmidt kind of thing yeah. down over at the... No, it,
3: well, it turns out to be you know a relatively good time to raise money for this kind of mm-hmm. uh, project. But at the same time, there's a lot of work to do. So...
2: All right. Yeah. So, talk about the litigation stuff that you're doing.
3: One of the one of the first cases we filed, probably the case that's got the most attention so far, is a challenge to President Trump's practice of blocking critics on Twitter. From
2: his personal thing, or his his
3: from at real Donald Trump, right? Which he, has, he characterizes is his process, his he characterizes it characterizes right, it as his personal account. But our complaint with that characterization is that he uses the account for official purposes. So, mm-hmm. for example, to announce the appointment of people to government posts does, yep. or to uh, engage in uh, international diplomacy, if that's the right phrase, um, or to it's defend— called international
2: trolling, but go ahead. International
3: trolling, right, right, or to defend or describe government policies you know, for all sorts of official purposes. Yeah. Uh, and if you go— It's not if, like
2: you should go watch this game. This no, baseball. it's not. It
3: used to be that way, you mm-hmm. know, before he became president. Mm-hmm. But once he became president, he started using it almost entirely forgets, for these— but go ahead. I don't think he
2: knows how to shift between them, but all right.
3: No, I think that's probably true, but Mm. most of— But he's
2: using it that way. He's using
3: it that way, and uh, when people criticize him or mock him for his decisions uh, or for his statements about his decisions, sometimes he blocks them.
2: right. Or Dan Scavino and, does. Whoever's. Doing or
3: Dan Scavino does. Yeah, it's, you know we happen to know that it was President Trump with respect to our clients because mm-hmm. in the litigation the government has disclosed that. Yeah. But can't um, you
2: see him there jabbing his little fingers like?
3: Eh, this guy well, apparently, you know. I apparently, he it. does it personally. He yeah. Personally, blocks them um, uh, out of I guess peak. That, yeah. You know. Yeah.
2: So. Well, that's how you, you block d- people. Just so you know. It's, no, it's I guess not, that's true. He, he that's, shouldn't be unfairly. He's not cared. special in that he's particular. Not special, that's that's I've right. Done it. I'm like you. Right. God.
3: Right. Right. But you're not a. Beneficial.
2: No, I'm not, but I'm just yeah, saying. So, I'm going to give him a break on that one.
3: There's one way to look at this, and, you know, this is a, a trivial thing. He's blocking people on Twitter. Is it the end of the world? And, you know, obviously, if you look at it that way, it's not. There's um, a
2: principle at stake here.
3: Well, it's not Danielle. just a principle at stake, but— um, No,
2: there is or it's actually a principle. Well, take? there is a principal <laughs> think right, so okay. It's
3: not only a principle. Right, you know, okay. th- th- this is the way that public officials engage with their constituents now. Mm-hmm. It's not just President Trump, it's public officials all over the country engage with their constituents maybe principally through mm-hmm. social media. And if you create a rule that allows public officials to block from their social media accounts anyone who criticizes them, you're going to have a pretty dramatic right. effect on public discourse. Absolutely. So I'm you know, good we, with this lawsuit. Yeah, so Gmail. we took on the lawsuit. Not everybody was, especially yeah. when we initially brought it. You know, when when we brought Would the they lawsuit. They think it's frivolous, or yeah, we made the argument that this was, um, that the president's Twitter account should be uh, thought of as a public forum under mm-hmm. the First Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, with the consequence that if a public yeah. official blocks somebody from that forum, it's unconstitutional, violates the First Amendment. And I think it took people a little bit uh, of time to come around to that view. But now my impression is that most First Amendment advocates and scholars are on our side. Uh, more importantly, the district court is on the, on our side and issued a ruling uh, a couple of months ago in our favor holding that this practice of blocking people uh, on the basis of viewpoint is unconstitutional. And the Trump administration has now unblocked our clients and uh, dozens of other people in response to that ruling. Uh, it is also appealing the ruling though, so we'll be in the second circuit.
2: And then um, what where does it go to? Does this go to the Supreme Court? Uh,
3: you know, I hope that they you know I they stop. I, I hope my hope was that they wouldn't appeal it. But they are appealing to the Second Circuit and if their we win in the being Second what? Circuit. So he can they, block
2: anyone he damn well pleases?
3: Essentially, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the argument is that notwithstanding the fact that he uses it in the ways that he uses it, notwithstanding the fact that if you go to his profile page, the account is said to belong to the president of the United States and there's a big photograph of Air Force One mm-hmm. on the page. Uh, notwithstanding all of that, their argument okay. is that it's a personal account.
2: Yeah. So where do you imagine this going?
3: Well, you know, it's already had uh, a pretty significant effect around the country, which is very gratifying to see uh, other public officials who have adopted this practice of blocking their critics from their social media accounts. Oh, he uh, doesn't have
2: an Air Force One now. He has a, a rally.
3: Oh, now it's a rally. It yeah, it changes okay. or, uh, every okay. few days. Yeah, yeah. But it's always something involving or usually something involving his official work. But there are public officials all over the country that have adopted this practice of blocking critics on social media, and now people are writing to them, citing, among other things, or citing principally this decision that we got from the Uh, Southern District of New York here. Uh, And it's very gratifying to see public officials, Democrats and Republicans, um, reconsidering their social media policies in response to this litigation.
2: And so it it should end there, that they can't do that. It should. It should end there. So when we get back, we're going to talk more about the stuff you're working on with Facebook and some other issues around the First Amendment on all these tech companies, which has become a big topic of late. We're here with Jamil Jaffer from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. With all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place.
2: We're here with Jamil Jaffer from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. We've been talking about some of the things they're doing there, including a, lo- a lawsuit against President Trump blocking people on Twitter, which is kind of a, a novel and unusual thing to talk about, but it's actually very important. Recently, you've been doing some things around Facebook. Can you tell people about them?
3: Yeah, sure. So, as everybody knows, Facebook has, or should know, Facebook has terms of service that um, restrict how users can use its platform. And the terms of service, in many respects, make sense. But one consequence of the terms of service is that journalists and researchers who want to study uh, Facebook's platform are impeded from doing so. And they're impeded from doing so because Facebook bars them from using some basic digital tools. Uh, for example, scraping information from you know, collecting by automated, mm-hmm. uh, uh, automated means information from the platform or using temporary accounts temporary research accounts to prompt the platform or you know try to figure out how the platform will respond to certain kinds of mm-hmm. prompts and there are many journalists and researchers who study the platform who've been able to do a lot of good work in spite of those restrictions. But these restrictions are increasingly limiting uh, their ability to study, not just Facebook, but other platforms mm-hmm. as well, which have and similar And these aren't people who just want
2: to do something for a business sense. Explain, these are people who are doing research and understanding how the platform works.
3: Yeah, basically, yeah. Y- you know, a, a whole lot of what we know about how Facebook works and how Facebook affects the world, and obviously yeah. Facebook and other platforms now have a huge, if you know, not fully understood, effect on public discourse, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Uh, what we know about the effect that social media platforms are having on public discourse, we know because digital because of the work that digital journalists and researchers have done. So the Cambridge Analytica uh, story, for example, is a result of work done by The Guardian. Or right. um, you know, Julia Angwin has done a lot of work about discriminatory ads on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Cash Hill has written about... Uh, the people you may know tool, and you know all of these, uh, uh, all of this journalism has told us a lot more about um, how, how this, the po- how, how they the work platform
2: is working or not working, mostly not working.
3: Yeah, working correctly. or not working, and shaping public discourse, and mm-hmm. thereby shaping our society. Right, and uh, you know some of these things are. Um, Uh, You know, discriminatory ads are, you you know, I think Julia was focused principally on the effects domestically, but some of the effects uh, of the social media platforms are very significant internationally. Uh, The New York Times has written about ethnic violence in Myanmar Mm -hmm. or ethnic violence in Sri Lanka. Right, Right. and and, um, this is reporting that is especially crucial right now. Uh, because nobody, and certainly not the platforms, uh, nobody fully understands mm-hmm. um, the implications of the decisions right. so that, people that are the platforms are away making and the
2: stuff, and so right. they were blocking it. And yeah, so, so they want they
3: want to study the platform, and there are these restrictions that prevent them from using the tools right. uh, that would be most useful to them. And the the restrictions generally make sense. It's you know it's entirely understandable why Facebook wants to limit its. Yes, they're looking. Um,
2: they're worried about abuse. People yeah, they're abuse.
3: worried that people will. Um, abuse the privacy of their, uh, right. their users, their, you know... Their, good
2: instinct. Yeah,
3: the entirely good instinct, and especially right now, you know, in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica sc- uh, scandal, Facebook and Twitter and other platforms are under a lot of pressure to uh, crack down on or to, to, to uh, ensure that that kind of abuse doesn't occur. Right. So, you know, all that is understandable, but one, one effect of those general prohibitions is to prevent journalists and researchers from doing work that we really need them to do right now. Mm -hmm. So we've gone to Facebook and we've said, will you create a safe harbor, amend your terms of service to make it possible for journalists and researchers to use these tools, to scrape the platform, public information from the platform. Our safe harbor is focused only on public information, uh, information that users decide to make public. Uh, but we've said, can you create a safe harbor so that journalists and researchers can scrape that kind of information from the platform uh, or that, uh, or so that they can use temporary research accounts to see how the platform responds to different kinds of profiles? And can you assure them that you won't invoke the terms of service against them right. uh, if they take on public interest projects? Um, that may be at
2: cross-purposes, too.
3: Well, y- you mean that Facebook— Yeah, it would be uh,
2: negative towards Facebook.
3: Well, it could be you know, some of it could be negative towards Facebook. Um, I mean, certainly the you know the Cambridge Analytica story was negative towards Facebook in a sense. Yeah. Although it was once pointing out a glaring yeah, hole. It was protecting Facebook's users, right? Yeah. That story protects Facebook users, and Facebook changed its policies. advertising. Right. Right. Facebook has changed its policies in response to the the Guardian's reporting around Cambridge Analytica, in response to ProPublica's reporting around discriminatory advertising. So, yes, uh, some of it could be embarrassing to to Facebook, Um, but some of it could also be very useful to Facebook and, more Mm -hmm. importantly, uh, crucial for its users. Right. Yeah. So, that's the idea. Um,
2: And where are you on this?
3: So, we wrote to them about a month ago. We asked them to uh, respond by just after Labor Day, and they responded very graciously, uh, and we've been in a conversation with them since. I think it's too early to say whether um, whether that conversation is going to lead anywhere, but we're so glad it's a to loosening be loosening
2: of rules for specific research projects.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's you know, to be honest, it's a it's a kind of hard balance to to strike here because again, you know, we're very sympathetic to. And just to be clear,
2: for listeners who don't know, the Cambridge Analytica thing started with a university
3: That's person right. doing it. That's right. That's right. So you, you don't want to create a situation he where just it because it's a reason, it yeah, just because it's a researcher, it's okay. You know, you can't create that kind of situation. Right. So the 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 safe harbor that we drafted, again, it's focused only on public information, uh, and then it requires journalists and researchers to observe certain safeguards or limitations. So, For example, you have to protect Facebook's users' privacy. Uh, You have to take measures to make sure that the information you collect isn't going to be inadvertently disclosed. You can't uh, transfer it to a third party. You can't transfer it, for example, to a data aggregator or to any other commercial enterprise. Uh, You can use it only to inform the public about matters of public concern. And obviously, there's going to be disagreement about the, the mm-hmm. meaning of some of these terms, and mm-hmm. Facebook's going to have to flesh it out over time. Facebook would have to uh, decide over time which projects it was willing to uh, allow and which ones it was going to shut down. Right. But in our view, that's a better situation than we're in right now, where Facebook has effectively categorically prohibited all of this journalism and research from taking place.
2: Right. And an open platform, presumably a platform yeah. that's relatively open. Yeah. So what? So these are the kind of things. What are you doing anything around Twitter or things like that? Or,
3: well, um, you mean aside from our lawsuit yeah. against President Trump, which yeah. is not against Twitter. It's, right. yeah, it's about Twitter, but not against Twitter. So on the research side, we are uh, just now uh, launching a project focused on. Uh, regulation of the social media platforms. Oh, good. Jamal Green is a, a Columbia law professor who is now going to be visiting at the Knight Institute. He's not visiting from very far away, but he's mm-hmm. visiting at the Knight Institute for the next year. Um, he's a constitutional scholar there, and he's going to focus on
2: what they um, should do.
3: Yeah, what they should do, and we have been uh, commissioning my, papers on this, yeah. you know, on this question. He's
2: going to be my new best friend.
3: Well, like uh, to you know, know nobody. Um, there are hard questions. There are yeah. hard questions, and. Um, you know, we've been thinking through them ourselves, but the point of this visiting scholars program is to bring in other people as well from, right, uh, not just the academy, but from, right. ideally With, from the companies as well.
2: But dealing about this, um, it's, what's going to be really important is think is like how they're going to regulate and and what it's going to manifest itself. Because I think the minute the Democrats get back, there's going to be some, if they get back, there's going to be some reckoning.
3: Yeah, I I think that's probably right. I mean, if I if I were at one of the companies, I would be. Working very hard on uh, self-regulation, to, you know, yeah. in order to Republicans
2: winning. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I'm not sure about that, but uh, I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, th- there's a lot that the companies can do on their own mm-hmm. that would help them if there were a more serious debate about regulation. Yeah, low-hanging fruit would be transparency. You right. know, more transparency about what kinds of decisions they're making, what the effects of those decisions I are. I just
2: wrote a column in the New York Times. That I, I know, I saw that, but, yeah. I just like some transparency.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, now there seems to be, I think, broad agreement maybe overstating it, but uh, broader than there was, you know, a year ago, that the social media companies should be more transparent about Mm -hmm. which accounts they're taking down and why they're taking them down. You know, there are these Santa Clara principles that some advocacy groups have put together that Mm -hmm. have to do with providing notice to people who are affected by those decisions, giving them an opportunity to appeal. Um, disclosure of statistics about, you know, how many of these decisions are being made and, you know,
1: and how, how many accounts are taken down.
3: Yeah. But, you know, one um, one observation about the debate so far is that the debate has focused, at least the public debate, I, I think that the academic debate and the debate amongst sort of technologists is is a deeper one than this, but the public debate has focused on these very uh, spectacular Censorship, does is spectacular yeah. in the sense that they get tons of attention like Alex Jones, right? Right. And, you know, there are hundreds or thousands of these decisions made every day yes, that are. aren't affecting people like Alex Jones. They're and affecting people who seconds. are on the margins, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, made in seconds or yeah. made by machines, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do worry that the debate, a debate focused on Alex, jo- Alex Jones gives people the impression that uh, we can just say the voices we really don't like will be kept off the platforms and everything else will be the same. Uh, you know, I do worry about marginalized voices that do not have, um, that aren't noticed in the way that Alex Jones is, uh, whose accounts are taken down or whose posts are taken down. And you know, the debate should encompass the
2: how and um, how they do these things,
3: and how they do these things. And so right. that's that's one part of it. But the other thing is uh, focusing just on the Alex Jones style cases, which are about account takedowns or posts mm-hmm. that are taken down. I think that's too narrow too, because you know, as you know. These th- maybe the more fundamental content creation that these platforms engage in every day, is just through algorithmic decisions mm-hmm. that you know prioritization, yeah. like which information you see, which information mm-hmm. you don't see, um, and I think there's a good argument that Alex Jones's power comes not so much from his access to the platform, but from the fact that the platform's algorithms privilege that kind of speech. Yes, and which I, Nicole was
2: talking about the pillars. Yeah. Change the pillars, and then you'll see a change in what's what wins.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think the I think that's, of like
2: uh, uh, what she was talking about was you know their engagement, speed, and something else are are, are right. She's the slow
3: food movement. For yeah. It. yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that you know the focus on Alex Jones. I'm not saying it's unwarranted, but I I, I do worry that you know it's taking it's shifting attention away from the responsibility of the platforms and to be
2: more clear about how they do what rules they make and why how they well, do well and things.
3: the fact that they they you know they make these decisions on a sort of second by second basis is not just about uh, taking down accounts. It's about uh, how you prioritize the information, you know, mm-hmm. which information you decide to show me and when you decide right. to show it to me and in what form you decide to show it to me. Why is it that Alex Jones's speech spread so quickly? Um, you know, maybe you can put some of that on Alex Jones, but some of it's on Facebook and some mm-hmm. of it's on Twitter. Right. Uh, some of it has to do with their algorithms. So I think, you know, we should have that sort of broader conversation about the role that the social media companies are playing in shaping and arguably distorting public public discourse.
2: Right. Because one of the things that I think, and the next section we'll talk about that is they, they get, you know, I was having an argument with someone about, about Alex Jones, and I, they are like, they shouldn't do this First Amendment. I said, they do it all the time. Are, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. Like, to have them go on and on about how they protect the First Amendment, I'm like, do you know how many people they've taken down? And by the way, you ever heard of Chuck Jones? Uh, it's Chuck Jones, right? They took him down. They, they didn't like him. They didn't like his words. He violated their things, and then they got off. That was it. Yeah,
3: it, I, I mean, I think that, that. Or they move
2: things down in priority, or right? They, move, they right, bury right. things. Yeah,
3: and I, you know, to recognize that is, you know, that that's to recognize something important, but it doesn't tell you anything about what what the solution is, right? right. So yeah, they do no. it all the time. Right. But then, I'm only so saying what? that because yeah. they
2: pretend they don't. They're like, yeah. oh no, we're back. In no, the no, first I know. Term, I agree right. with you. Yeah. I,
3: yeah, I agree with you. But I just think that the the hard question doesn't get presented until you recognize that they do it all the time. Now we recognize they do it all the time. Well, what's the answer? So on the on the one hand, you have the platform saying, well, we have a First Amendment right to create the kinds of communities we want to create. And that's a plausible argument. And on the other hand, you have the very real concern that centralizing the power to control debate in the social media companies um, would be the worst thing in the world, which is also a very, you know, right. a very serious argument. Yeah. And you know, the First Amendment is concerned principally with centralization of power in the government, centralization of the power over— But not this. Uh, yeah, this, this, the First Amendment doesn't obviously have Never very much to say about this. Bu- yeah. well, we're
2: going to talk about the privatization of the public sphere, which you talked about, which I think is a really great way to put it. When we get back, we're here with Jameel Jaffer. He's from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. We're here with Jameel Jaffer. He's from the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia, and we we're just talking about— a whole range of ideas around how these social media companies m- monitor themselves or, or don't, ha- or lack of monitoring of themselves. But one of the things you said early on was this idea of the privatization of the public space. And I think in his testimony last week, Jack uh, Dorsey called Twitter the public square. And I was like, no, it's not. It It is, but it's not. A- mm-hmm. And if it is, then he gets to be regulated if he's the public square or something like that. And so talk a little bit about what you mean by the privatization of the public sphere.
3: Yeah. Um... Well, I think what I mean by that is that conversations that used to take place um, in spaces that were subject to the First Amendment are now taking place in spaces that are controlled by private actors and therefore not subject to the First Amendment. Now, public square is used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. There was this decision a couple of years ago, the Packingham decision that Justice Kennedy wrote in which he described the social media platforms as the public square and Justice Alito wrote a concurrence, uh, effectively scolding uh, Justice Kennedy for using that language, saying, you know, you don't want to go down that road. You don't even mean what you're saying. Uh, You know, so there's this debate at the level of uh, legal doctrine, you know— are the social media companies a public squares or not? Then there's a question, you know, sort of in a in a more practical way. I know Zainab Tefeki has has resisted the idea of calling these social media companies public squares because really their whole model is based on feeding you just information, information that's really made just for you. So it's right. the opposite of a public square in a yeah. way.
2: And then but, it's interested in grabbing information from you to feed yeah. advertisers. But yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, they're not publicly. No. Uh, you know, they're they're not. Their their interest is not a public interest. It's a commercial, right. you know, no, corporations. No, it's your walking across the public right.
2: square, and this is how they're walking across. And here's they might want an ice cream right here because they right. seem hot. Right, like, right,
3: right. I mean, see, there's this whole level of surveillance under. Does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a whole level of surveillance under the speech mm-hmm. and they're monetizing the results of that that surveillance so that, you know, in, in those respects, it doesn't look like a public square, right? But there's no question that these companies have um, immense power to decide not just who can speak but also who gets heard. Right, who can speak because they decide who gets onto the platforms and who doesn't, Mm -hmm. but who can be heard because their algorithms decide what speech gets prioritized and what speech gets, you know, uh, suppressed. Yeah. So you know, in that sense, um, they control the public, the public square, and not just in the United States, but uh, in a lot of the world. Right. And you know, again, the First Amendment is concerned principally with government power, but we resisted the centralization of control over the public square in the government because we didn't like the idea of centralization of that kind of power. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we should resist the idea of centralizing power in the social media companies uh, for the same reason, you know. So that, you know, that's how you get to proposals like, well, maybe we should have a must-carry rule, which requires Facebook to carry everybody, you know, that restricts Mm -hmm. Facebook from. But you run up against pretty serious First Amendment arguments on the other side. You know, Facebook can, uh, I think, quite plausibly say that it has a First Amendment right to create the kind of community that wants to write, uh, wants to create. And I'm not sure we really want uh, a situation where Facebook is subject to the First Amendment in the same way that the government is. I mean, it would require Facebook to um, allow pornography on the platform, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would allow, it would require Facebook to allow, you know, constitutionally protected hate speech. So Facebook would be required to to host Mm -hmm. that. And I'm not sure anybody would see that as a solution. To the problems that we're you right. know we're facing right now, so that's all just to say that it's complicated. I don't have any answers.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Uh, but you know, when you talk about this debate, use a, a debate like the Alex Jones thing. A lot of people pulled out this he has a First Amendment right, and often I say, well, he does, but it doesn't mean he doesn't get kicked off. It's two yeah. different things. Like I was, I think I wrote, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequence, and if you break the rules of a platform. You get to pay for that, essentially. Yeah. No, I mean, How I do think First that's... Amendment scholars look at this? Because I think people sort of have convoluted, have re- been very reductive about the First Amendment, especially when it comes to these social media companies. And the other argument, of course, is they're private companies. They can do whatever they want.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you have summarized quite well the, you know, basic First Amendment arguments here. Um, Alex Jones has the right to speak, but that doesn't mean he has the right to be on Facebook's Same platform. Same Barr. Uh, yes, and Facebook uh, has its own First Amendment rights here, uh, and it expresses them by ejecting Alex Jones from the from mm-hmm. the platform. I think, you know, none of that would raise difficult questions if it weren't for Facebook's scale, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Um, it's the fact that Facebook is so big and that Facebook... Uh, arguably, you know, controls the public square or arguably controls a large segment of the public square, that's when, uh, I think, free speech advocates start to get nervous about uh, Facebook excluding people from the platform, especially where there's an argument that they're excluding people uh, on the basis of viewpoint. You know, and you can think whatever you want to about Alex Jones, but, you know, worry not about Alex Jones, but about the next, you know, the next person or, you know, next year or... Uh, you know who is it that Facebook is going to be excluding next year? And if we know anything from the history of government censorship, we know that this power is going to be used uh, most aggressively against marginalized voices, controversial voices, uh, marginalized voices that we especially need to hear. And you know, this would not be a worry if Facebook were. Uh, you know, a community listserv or something like that, because Facebook wouldn't have this kind of outsized effect on public discourse and on on our society. But, you know, if you accept and, you know, again, there's an argument about this, but if you accept that Facebook is rightly characterized as the public square or a big piece of the public square, then I think you should be very troubled by the idea that Facebook is going to decide who gets to speak and who gets heard.
2: Well, now, Mark Zuckerberg was trying not to be able to be able to say.
3: Yeah, I'm not unsympathetic to him,
2: but he kind of has to. Yeah. So what does he do?
3: Well, I mean, I've I, had him yeah, do this to me. I'm yeah. like, well,
2: you still, why don't you? Why are you the controlling shareholder? Why do you have 64 billion dollars? You you can't, you can't own it and control it and say you don't. own yeah, it Yeah, look,
3: it. I I'm not unsympathetic to um, their feeling that you know we don't we don't want to have to decide these questions. Yeah. But I would be a lot more sympathetic to them if. Um, they were at the very least offering us this low-hanging food of transparency and notice and an appeal right. You know, at the very least, they should tell us what decisions they're making, who, mm-hmm. you know, who is getting excluded from the square, whose voices are getting amplified, whose voices are getting suppressed. Mm-hmm. Offer statistics about all of those things and offer transparency uh, at the level so of individual cases that? and transparency at the level of the algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that they they've definitely made moves in that direction over mm-hmm. the last um, over the last few years. I think part of the concern is the way people res- will respond to that mm-hmm. kind of transparency. I mean, the transparency could be embarrassing for them yep. uh, uh, for them and it could lead to calls for regulation. Mm-hmm. But I still think they have a responsibility to do it.
2: Yeah, so what but but get more behind the idea that they don't want the responsibility of something they built. See, I think they have responsibility for it. So they got to figure it out. Like it's not my pro- it's my problem, but it's they want to push it yeah. away and yet they hold all the benefit parts. Yeah. The money, the advertising. No, I, I
3: mean I think I think that's I think that's right and then
2: give us the money I, if they don't want it, if they don't want to give someone yeah. let someone else run it, own it. Like you, hand it over to someone else. You should else.
3: propose that to them. I have. They don't um, like that idea.
2: Well, They have rejected my brilliant idea.
3: I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. It's a good idea. But, you know, this is part of why the Alex Jones debate, you know, again, makes me uncomfortable. Not because I disagree that Alex Jones is a toxic person who mm-hmm. is ca- causing real harm to real people. Obviously, he is. But I think that a lot of the responsibility, most of the responsibility for the problems that most concern— people like you and me right now, disinformation or discrimination on these platforms or echo echo mm-hmm. chambers and filter bubble. I mean, all those problems are the result not of people like Alex Jones, but of people like Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. The platforms themselves are making these decisions. The platforms uh, decide to amplify some speech and suppress other speech. They, they decide to facilitate some kinds of communities and to foreclose other kinds of communities, and they need to take responsibility for those decisions.
2: So what would you do if you were eventually Twitter did the same thing even though you knew they were going to do it kick kick off Alex Jones it Took them a while they wanted to make their speeches about the first amendment and then they did exactly what everybody else did How did you look at that
3: Yeah I mean I I find it hard to answer that question in isolation because I uh, you know I think the Alex Jones thing it's a mistake to look at it in isolation because the decision that Twitter or Facebook makes is uh, is a more general decision that will have implications for cases involving people who aren't Alex Jones. Right. So that's one reason why I don't like answering the Alex Jones question. Mm-hmm. In it, you know, yeah, fair point. You know, if you ask me, um, do you want that guy who you disagree with all the time to be quieter or to be um, you know, stopped from speaking by the government? If I look at that in isolation, then maybe I would say, yeah, it's totally fine if you know the government stops him from speaking. I don't like what he says, uh, but that's Where not the way the, the world works. The, you know, the, no, of yeah. course,
2: no. In this case, they kind of had a he broke the terms of service. That's right. So yeah, that's he broke an the terms way. of service.
3: Well, it's an easy one under their policies. That's right. Yeah, but the that's question right. is, you know, are their policies the right ones for a society, right? right. And so what I would think you that's propose? a harder it's a harder question. What
2: would you do if you were running one of these things and you have all this not yeah. just well, but fake news is a whole other thing, but it, you know, that's a whole issue that's not protected. It's lies essentially. Yeah. But well,
3: so so I I would I would do a number of things. So one I've already mentioned, which is Provide more information about which so accounts tell us are being what taken. You're doing. Tell, tell us what's going on. Yeah, they don't want to show uh, you that. Both in individual cases they're and more gonna, generally. Mm-hmm. You asked me what I would do, all right? I'm right, not, okay, not what, what they're going to do. I'm just yeah. telling you, I'm yeah.
2: going to do that. But I like it.
3: So, so that's one. There's all another right. form of transparency. Uh, which is what we're asking for in this letter we sent to Facebook, which is essentially make it easier for journalists and researchers to study what's going on on your platforms. Right. Uh, make it easier for the world to understand how these platforms work. Let us solve the problem work. for you. Or let us help solve the problem. How about that? Do I um, reject
2: Dorsey's thing? Journalists will figure out. We'll tell everybody. i was like, really? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I don't own Twitter stock. I'm not sure I want to do that job.
3: Well, and Twitter also has terms of service that restrict journalists from doing the know, same kinds of journalism. He, that he took it has. back, yeah.
2: but boy, was that a um, doozy.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, so... It's um, the word for it,
2: doozy. What a doozy. Anyway, go ahead, sorry.
3: Well, so, uh, you know, another okay, piece so of the transparency... Let I mean, journalists I, I, do it. You know, I was thinking about this today in relation to this video that Breitbart was circulating yeah. about the Google meeting, yeah. right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, uh you know, if you do conceive of these, you know, Kate Klonick is a, a legal scholar who has this recent article called The New Governors where she characterizes the social media companies as... Uh, akin to governors and therefore, you know, Mm -hmm. the implication is we ought to treat them that way and they ought to, uh, well, we we ought to demand things of them that we would demand of our governors. Right.
2: We can't vote them out
3: though. You can't vote them out. That's a problem. you can demand that they provide things like due process protections and transparency protections, right? Mm -hmm. But if you think of the social media companies as governors or akin to governors, Mm -hmm. then why not also have whistleblower rules? Right yeah, um, why doesn't why doesn't Google and why, why don't Google and Facebook and Twitter have whistleblower rules to protect people who would tell the public about abuses uh, of one kind or another uh, that are taking place within you know within those companies? Mm-hmm. Because you know, again, if you, you you know if you take seriously the fact that these come as you should that these companies uh, have an outsized effect on public discourse and therefore an outsized effect on our society, then there ought to be some safeguards in place to ensure that the companies are working in the public interest.
2: Mm-hmm. If they are treated like that, because we've never treated companies like this in the past, what other companies have been in the public interest like this?
3: Well, th- this is not unprecedented TV? at all. Uh, yeah, so, th- you know, we we regulated broadcasts in this way, you know, common carriers, uh, the mm-hmm. railroads, You're right. Right? You're right? So, uh, And so, I'm not even suggesting that we should think of the social com- uh, the social media companies in the same way. No, I'm not saying that we should think, yeah, level, yeah, I'm though. just saying that uh, so, it's not unprecedented so, to require... So to,
2: fi- to finish up, um, what regulation do you think is coming?
3: I have no idea. I mean, I, and I think that... Um, if I were the social media companies, I'd be very nervous about that. As a First Amendment advocate, I'm a little bit nervous about it myself. Um, because as people
2: probably were in television time. Sorry, radio, as people were in television yeah. time.
3: Yeah, but yeah, they got regulated. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that regulation. I think that we should uh, we should consider. Regulating the social media companies, and there are a lot of different possibilities that range from, uh, again, low-hanging fruit like transparency regulation to much more intrusive regulation relating to, you know, content, like a must-carry rule, for Trump, example, yeah. would be, yeah. And some of those make sense, and some of them don't, and yeah. uh, it's very un- unpredictable. You.
2: Section two thirty, it's my favorite new thing.
3: Yeah, I why mean, not
2: just make them liable? Then they'll stop misbehaving. They'll they'll be it'll be in their interest to do a good job at their job.
3: Well, I think that the the risk there is that, yes, they will stop misbehaving, but they will also take down a whole lot of information that is constitutionally protected and valuable, but they'll worry about liability. And again, you know, I'm not worried about Alex Jones here. I'm worried about I don't know, Black Lives Matter or mm-hmm. um, you know, a million different controversial right. uh, politically controversial topics that, Private actor, other private actors will write to Facebook, uh, or government officials will write to Facebook, saying, "You know, why do you have this up?" And Facebook will panic and take it down. And so I'm not, I'm not categorically opposed to mm-hmm. an amendment uh, to Section
2: 230.
3: It's which already being chipped away, and lots of- in this foster system. Yeah, it's already been chipped away a little bit. I'm not categorically opposed to. I think it's worth considering, but. There are risks, and um, right, yeah, and those risks I think we should take seriously, too.
2: yeah, all right, to finish up, what do you think the next battleground is?
3: The one thing we haven't talked about is surveillance. Oh, um, yes. You know, I, I think that people aren't accustomed to thinking of surveillance as a threat to mm-hmm. the First Amendment. They think of surveillance as a privacy threat, mm-hmm. which of course it is. But, Pervasive surveillance also has very real implications for the freedoms of speech and association and the press. And it's very hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, When people are under surveillance, they act differently, but how do you measure um, whether they are acting differently and to what extent they're acting di- uh, differently? It's a very difficult thing. But there's a whole line of cases from the 1960s and 70s involving more primitive forms of surveillance, but that draw the connection between surveillance and, and, and the First Amendment. And I think that... Uh, over the next ten years, you're going to see, at the very least, advocates, and I hope courts too, uh, argue this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Accept accept this connection and think about the implications for um, for the First Amendment of both government surveillance and private surveillance. That you
2: didn't give your consent, and they. That- yeah, or
3: even if you gave your consent, you know, um, uh, people give their consent for limited purposes, and then the information is used for other purposes, right. or. Uh, you know the government loves to make this argument in other contexts, but people give uh, one piece of information uh, in one context and another piece of information in another context, and together these things form a mosaic. And right. you can learn a lot more uh, about a person by putting all this stuff yes, together as data aggregators you know are they paid know. to do yeah. um, than you can by just studying you know individual data points. And all that has, you know, far-reaching privacy implications, and we started having this privacy debate in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. Uh, but I think we're only now starting to grapple with it, the, the free speech implications.
2: Absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating, and there's more to come. I'm, I am I want to check in with you a lot, uh, maybe in a year, about where you guys are going and what your next areas are. That'd be I think great. you're right. Absolutely. Surveillance is another one. Things in the home, uh, How what you say in your home and what is protected, like, with these devices. Yeah. Um, how you behave in VR? There's all kinds of things that I right, think people. Right, and who, right. What your identity is. Right. Is and, and
3: you're, you know, you're carrying around this surveillance device in your pocket. I as call all it that do. all the yeah. time. No one yeah.
2: ever listens to me. I'm always like, this <laughs> is, this is. You just join the prison system uh, when you realize it and how much information they have on you. Uh, Jamil, it was great talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show and please come again. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like this interview, you're not a very smart person or you just want to say hi, tweet at me at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.